this morning is in Colossians chapter 3 on page 1184 in the church Bibles. Colossians chapter 3 and we begin at verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I'm tempted to say, here's one I made earlier. <laughs> That's the light bit of the sermon uh, before we uh, get into our passage this morning. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Mike. I just want to tell you, though, of something I read recently about a lady called Michelle. Michelle grew up in an Irish Catholic family. She's a woman about the same age as me, so <clears throat> 40-ish, late 40-ish. But she turned away from the church in the 70s when she was a child. She was turned away because she inquired at the time of whether she could become an altar server. <clears throat> the priest said that the only time a woman could approach the altar was on the day that she got married. In the last decade, Michelle has made her way back to the church. But what struck me about her story was this that she made the, her way back to the church on her own terms. She said, I quickly developed a sense <clears throat> of what I did and what I didn't want in church. I wanted to have a transcendent experience, but as a mother of three young children, I also wanted convenience. She auditioned uh, a number of churches, and she said at the end of it, she said, I had zero tolerance for folk masses, for rote reciters of scripture, for congregants who refused to sing, and for any people who are unkind to my well-mannered children. I would cross those churches off my list. I want my preachers to be witty, to be lyrical and learned. Michelle then went on to list a dozen more categories of things that she wanted and didn't want from a church. Michelle, in many ways, represents a very common outlook on life, on church, and on the Bible. 
what many would call the progressive liberal approach to life. But what really struck me about Michelle was this. At no point did she ever say in the article, I don't like the teaching of the church, or I don't like this doctrine in the Bible, but I'm prepared to submit to an authority greater than myself. I think Michelle speaks for many in our culture today whose ultimate authority in life is not what the church teaches or what the Bible says, but rather what I personally feel about the issue. What I personally feel about the issue. See, in the progressive liberal tradition, I am my own God. At the complete other end of the spectrum, we may have the fundamentalist. The fundamentalist would have a sticker on their car that went something like this. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Or to simplify it, it might be the, the advert that I've heard said many times from Nike. Just do it if God said it. If the Bible says it, just do it. You don't question it, you don't interpret it, you just obey it. Now, for many of you sat here, you might be saying, that's right, Tim, I'm there, preach it. Don't, don't mess about with me. But there are two problems with the fundamentalist approach, and that's this. The first problem is that we don't actually mean what we say. There are any number of biblical texts <coughs> that we just don't do. For example, five times in the New Testament, the writer tells us to greet each other with a holy kiss. I mean, some of you might do that. Not many of you do that in this particular church, I've noticed. I've occasionally done that. If you're not a vegetarian, for example, do you refuse to eat meat with blood in it? Of course, the Bible in numerous places tells us not to eat meat with blood, including the New Testament. The New Testament says that women should cover their hair. Don't see much of that this morning. It says that men aren't to grow long hair. It's a disgrace if you've got long hair. And Jesus tells us that we should wash one another's feet. When was the last time you washed somebody else's feet this morning? And this all leads to the second problem of the fundamentalist approach. It's this. It's, of course, that every single person, as they read the Bible, interprets it. Nobody just reads it flat. Nobody. The vast majority of Christians who hold on to the authority of the Bible go through some sort of process of interpretation in which we t look at what's written and the culture in which it was written, and we seek to take off the shell of the, the culture, and probably mostly, mostly the first century culture of where, of where it's written, and find the transcultural kernel, the heart of the teaching that crosses generations, crosses cultures, and holds across everything, so that we can apply it to 21st century Britain. So we're going to tackle a very challenging text this morning in the book of Colossians. Wives, children, and slaves, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly this morning. Help us, we pray, as we read your word, as we submit ourselves to you, that we would see you, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, uh, right at the beginning, you'll see the text goes smack into 21st century with the opening words in Colossians 3, 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. I was going to be very cheeky um, for those of you who are married to do a kind of hands thing this morning, but I thought that would actually push people way beyond which you might be comfortable uh, in terms of seeing where you sit on certain bits of this. But I'm going to be quite well behaved this morning, attempt to be anyway. And for you, if you've read that passage many times, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Wives, submit to your husbands. But let's say you go up to Bath University campus this afternoon. And as you go up to Bath University campus, you go and meet one of the female professors of history up at there at the universities. And she's interested in restoring a relationship with God. God's a work in her life, and she wants to be restored to God. And you, she says to you, you know, I have a very egalitarian approach to my marriage. We support each other's goals. We share our chores. Neither of us has the final say. Is that okay? Is that okay? Can I live this way and be a good Christian? Do you say, sure, that's great. Or do you say, no, I've got to be honest with you. If you're going to become a Christian, what you've got to do is radically change the way you do your marriage. I wonder what you'd say. But let's move aside from marriage for a second to tackle the slavery text. A woman named Laxmi Swami comes to you and she says this. She says, I'm trying to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I feel drawn to the person of Jesus. And someone's given me a Bible. I've been reading the Bible. I've come across this text in Colossians 3.22 that says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it, not only with their eye on you to carry their favor, but with the sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Is that, she says to you, what's required of me? Or am I allowed to run away from my master? And she tells you her story, which, by the way, is an absolutely true story. Lakshmi Swami was born in India and came to England via Kuwait. She's a servant of two sisters of the Emir of Kuwait, who regularly spend six months of their lives in central London, and they take their servants with them. They subject these women, including Laxmi, to extreme cruelty, both physical and mental. Laxmi is regularly beaten with a broomstick or a knotted electrical cord or a horsewhip. They yanked out two of her teeth and told her that one of her four children who were back in Kuwait, had actually been killed. So cruel were they to her. She is at their beck and call every other day. She's allowed to sleep for only two hours a night on the floor outside their locked bedrooms. And likes me to say that she's always hungry and is often denied food for days at a time. Likes me asks you, as a Christian, a very simple heartfelt question. 
would it be okay if I ran away from these women or reported them to the authorities? Or should I just do what Colossians 3.22 says? Obey your masters in everything. The stories of many is similar and uh, is found in the book, Disposable People, the new slavery in the global economy. It's a true story of modern slavery. So how do we read the Bible? I just want to offer you three ways this morning before we get into the text to read some of these challenging texts for interpreting the Bible. Firstly, the Bible is always interpreted for us in the light of the fact that we are charismatic evangelicals. We're a church that holds strongly and firmly to the authority of the Bible as God's word, his revelation, his story. But also at the same time to the power and to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Being evangelicals means we can never say, I'm going to pick, I'm going to choose which bit of the Bible I'm going to obey and which I'm not. The Bible is not a smorgasbord to pick and choose what we want to. But when we discover the heart of the biblical text, we're committed to obey, to follow, and to pursue the mind and heart of God and the power of his spirit in our lives. And we understand in that that the Bible doesn't always offer us answers to every single question we face in our lives. For example, it doesn't give us detailed accounts in how we raise our children. If you're a parent, to be honest, you'd quite like that sometimes. When do we put them to bed? What do we allow them to watch on television or on films? How do we allow them to live their lives? How do we advise them? Which school do we send them to? And all those kind of things. But being charismatic evangelicals means that we understand that each of us needs to develop our own relationship with God from where we learn to be led by the Holy Spirit in areas that are not clearly defined by Scripture. Secondly, the Bible is always interpreted with the spread of the gospel in mind. For the Apostle Paul, who wrote this, social roles, the way that men relate to women, the way that Jews relate to Gentiles, the way that slaves relate to masters, are always secondary to the overriding goal of knowing Christ, of knowing Christ, of receiving Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. The issue is for Paul, what will promote the gospel? What will promote the cause of the gospel, as Paul says again and again? For Paul, how you organize some of the details of your marriage, how you organize your life in the workplace, how you organize government is not the first priority. For Paul, the fundamental issue is, Christian, are you acting in a way that promotes the gospel or hinders the spread of the gospel? Is your life promoting good, good in God or are you promoting bad? Are you frankly good news or are you bad news? Remember, Paul writes as a missionary. He sensitively knew how to tailor his message and his counsel to fit the culture and the situation that he found as he, as he traveled extensively. And in our culture, in this time, we need to do the same. We need to do it with a view that, we, that we sp the spread of the gospel, the gospel is never 
compromise, but we always take note of it. And then, th- then thirdly, in terms of reading Scripture, you know, one of the difficulties if you read um, just with a very flat approach to Scripture, you just see it all very flat and even as this. So you can justify one person owning another, which is why human slavery continued for so many years. Slavery appears throughout Scripture. Slavery was never abolished in the New Testament. But Paul says here, if slaves uh, obey your masters, Peter does the same thing in other parts of the Bible. But Wilberforce and many others over many years, over many generations, the abolitionists argued coherently, cohesively, and persuasively that God never intended the first century social order to be his ultimate. His ultimate is, God's ultimate is the kingdom of God, God's coming kingdom. In God's ultimate kingdom, in God's coming kingdom, no human being owns another human being. Because all of us are made in the image of God. God's kingdom is a kingdom of liberty. It's a kingdom of freedom. So we always ask when we're looking at scripture and seeing scriptures, what's God's ultimate? What does the kingdom of God look like? And we read scripture according to his kingdom and his intention that's coming, not just when something was written at one particular time. So let's look at the three texts quickly um, and what we're going to find. So first of all, looking at the texts, we discover that as we've seen throughout the book of Colossians, Paul again and again and again and again says that life is to be Christ-centered. And in these passages between 3.18 and 4.1, in the word there you'll see master there, Paul explicitly refers to the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of life. Social roles are secondary to the lordship, the mastership of Jesus Christ. What's primary for Paul is your identity as a Christian. The most important thing that can be said about you this morning is not whether you're married or whether you're single. It's not where you live, which postcode you live in. It's not what your education has been. It's not what work you do or what work you don't do. Or even whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. The most important thing that we can say about you this morning is that is your life in Christ. No identity is more important than this. I am a child of God. I belong to Christ. I was bought with a price of Christ's blood that we will celebrate in communion a bit later on. Can you say that this morning? I'm a child of God. Not as it is more important to me this morning than the fact that my identity is in Christ. He's a center of my life. So Paul next then speaks about three relationships, three, three relationships. I used to be an accountant, that's quite worrying. There used to be three relationships in life that have been part of the first century home. And here's the first principle we can draw. Uh, We discover that, that we are called to sacrifice for each other. We see in verses 18 and 19 in the scripture in front of you. Wives, submit to your, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I'm conscious as I preach this morning, there'll be some of you here who take a very traditional view 
at the beginning of that Colossians 3 passage. You say that Paul wasn't simply uh, telling women to observe the culturally approved role uh, that they had in the first century to order and promote the gospel, but actually Paul was giving a permanent injunction for all wives everywhere at all times to order themselves under their husbands. And I have no difficulty if you take that view this morning. It's a very traditional understanding, and actually it's, it's a very faithful understanding to certain parts of Scripture. As long as, if you take that view, as long as, as long as your wife is never to feel inferior to you, as long as your wife is never to feel as though that she can't fully use her gifts, her abilities, and her intelligence in the marriage, as long as as no woman is never inclined to become passive or lose her creative energy, so long, long as no woman is submits to physical, sexual, or verbal abuse and think that's okay and acceptable and it's God's will for your life. Taking a traditional view is okay, but you, all those other things apply too. Because we know that in marriage, like in child rearing, that actually one size doesn't always fit all. But I would naturally lean as part of what Paul says in Ephesians 5 as well, is that we're called to mutual submission too. That we're called to mutually sacrifice in our relationships, mutually serve each other's needs, mutually support each other. I don't believe men and women are the same. I don't think we're called to try and be the same in all that we do. But we are called to mutually support each other in our differences. And Paul uses a word in Colossians 3.19 that if you're a man here particularly, is very challenging. The Greek word agape is, transfer, is translated agape, love. It's a command. It is a command. Love, it's a command. Paul says three times in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, Love your wives. And agape is a distinctively Christian word. It speaks with a kind of self-sacrificial love that we find in Jesus Christ himself. The Bible scholar William Barclay uh, says this about this passage. He said, nowhere else other than in the New Testament, like in Colossians 3.19 here, but also in Ephesians 5, Do you ever read instructions like this? Husbands, agape, your wife. In the social order of the time that's written in the the first century, all the cultural rules were about how husbands govern their wives. Rule your wife, husband. Control her. Only here do we have this radical, revolutionary statement. Husbands, lay your life down for your wife. Lay your life down for your wife. Sacrifice for your wife. Serve your wife. Be a blessing to your wife. Be a strength to your wife. Support your wife. Be an encouragement for your wives. One of the tests of the quality of that love is to ask a husband to a wife. He said, is your wife 
flourishing? Is your wife thriving? The third principle from this text, it's gone quite quiet, isn't it? Uh, we discover that we are to strengthen and to encourage one another in Colossians 3, 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. It seems obvious that children are to obey their, their parents. It seems like an obvious thing to say. But you need to remember in the first century when this was written, a child's obedience to his father or to his family was not restricted to the time when they were young like we have in this country. A child's obedience extended throughout their whole life. So what is this saying? It's saying fathers and mothers at the same time, it's right for you to expect your children to obey you in everything that is not sin. And they shouldn't obey you just when you, you shouldn't obey just when your parents are around. The mark of a society in collapse, remember, Paul writes in Romans 1 and says that children are disobedient to their parents. But Paul says to, his, to the parents, but you parents, he says, make sure that you don't irritate or provoke your children by having such an inflexible attitude or by being domineering or by being oppressive that your child, at least on the inside, even if they don't say it to your face, throws up their hands and says, nothing I do will be good enough for my parents. They don't understand me. For us fathers and for mothers too, we need to experience approval and God's smile and our parents' smile, as well as advice and direction. The children don't just need your words, they need your ear. They want to be listened to, given dignity, given time. They don't need, just need rules, they long for a relationship. They don't just want your toughness, they want your tenderness too, says Paul. And finally, we discover that Christ makes all things new. So verse 22 onwards, slaves obey your ma earthly masters and everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since that you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Those who do wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. So what do I mean that Christ makes all things new? One of the beauties of the Christian message of the gospel is that whatever culture you're in, whatever circumstances you're in, whether you, are, you speak about people in other parts of the world who are in slavery, who are oppressed, for a Christian... Our ultimate boss is Jesus Christ. And he sets a completely new standard. Christians across the world have a new standard. Paul says, don't just obey people when they're looking at you to win their favor, to try and manipulate people. The, the literal word, the Greek word in here, is can be translated eye service. So don't just work when your boss is looking at you and you're trying to impress them. 
You know what eye service is, don't you? It's like when you're working in the office, clearly I must have done this in the past. Your boss comes in and you toggle between the things you were watching on YouTube or on Facebook or whatever else it was that you were obsessing about and you pretend you're working. You're hard at work, even though you're not. It's called eye service. In this Christ-centered world, the Apostle Paul is saying four times in these verses that a Christian, if you're a Christian, your boss is Jesus Christ. He's your boss. Your boss is Jesus Christ. And all of life is lived for him. All that we do is live for him. And you couldn't work for a better boss than Jesus Christ. It's very tempted to go work for your customers, for your um, employees, um, or your family, or whatever else it is you're going to. But the boss whose opinion that really matters about your life, not the people you're trying to impress and please on a daily basis, is Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate boss, the ultimate saviour, our ultimate Lord, who we need to turn to. But what does that look like in practice this week as you head out to this week? Let me just finish with this thought. When you wake up in the morning, and before you get to bed, you say, well, Jesus, you're the one who's given me breath and made me alive today. I want to work for you today. Jesus, today I want to serve you with what I do. Enable me through the words I say and the things I do and the thoughts that I think to serve you well. My life is submitted to you. I want to display it through my actions, but also my attitudes and all that I do. When you think about the people you're going to meet, meet we, you're going to meet in the day ahead. When you're singing in the shower, that may not be a great image, but when you're singing in the shower, here are the people I'm going to interact with today. Lord, would you bless those? Bless those interactions that I'm going to have today. Give me wisdom to know what to say, what not to say. Give me strength not to shirk my responsibilities. I'm not here to provide eye service, to pretend I'm living one life and to quietly be living a different life. We're called to please God. He sees everything. We're called to live with honesty and integrity because as a Christian, your ultimate boss, the person we're called to please, is Jesus Christ. You're doing it for the Lord, all that you do in a working week. You're working for Christ. You're doing it unto the Lord. You may have the same old job, but you have a new standard and a new boss at work. And that's incredibly empowering and liberating for whatever it is you do in whatever context, however difficult you find it. So this morning we say to Jesus, Lord, I want to see more of your dynamic rule and reign in my life. You're not just my example. You're my saviour, you're my lord, you're my king. Would you come and reign in my everything? You are my boss. In Jesus' name, amen.